We all feel the truth of those words we were just singing. We all feel a reality to it. But I think if we're being honest and kind and generous, it wouldn't be too much to say that we could forgive those who, who don't necessarily feel that, who look around at the world, uh, maybe beginning in their brokenness of their own heart to brokenness in families that show up in the holiday times, brokenness in our communities, you know, our state, our nation, our world. You could, you could forgive people for wondering whether or not this is true. But this helps explain Advent. Advent teaches us to wait. It teaches us in these lovely yearly rhythms that fundamental to the universe is hope, peace, joy, and love. And that is either true and it begins to shape your view of reality or you come to the conclusion that it's not true and that there either isn't a God or God is somehow deficient and thus one's view of evil begins to shape their view of God rather than a view of God shaping what feels like a constant waiting. And these texts that we read, and, and tonight at the candlelight service, my easily like my, I think, my favorite service every year. And you know, I've been doing it since I was a boy, you know, reading these lessons and carols. But somehow reading this always alerts me to two things that these Christmas or Advent readings that we read, we, we've now sort of um, co opted, I don't mean this negatively, but we've sort of co opted them, uh, you know, as our kind of Christmas story. But if we were an ancient Jew and living through all the nuttiness of bad kings and rulers and heard this, we would have a, a different feel about it because the people of God to whom this word in Isaiah 9 came were people who'd been driven to great distress and suffering and were genuinely wondering if the world would ever be made right. Is there really a God who's called us? You know, is, is there anything to what the patriarchs said millennia ago or were they all just sort of nuts? Wondering how there could be a God given what was going on in their world. They didn't see any love or peace or prosperity or righteousness happening around them at all. But then this answer comes from the prophet saying, yes, um, the world is not just a mess. It's also the precise location of God's love and intervention. And so what this text is full of is this notion of a sovereign authority, a sovereign resolve, and a loving capacity of God to achieve these great reversals that you see in the text through this birth of a son. Now, most scholars will think that the, the, the sort of original birth of the son was the next king, Hezekiah. But it's not unlike biblical prophecy to either have some scholars would see it as a type, others would see it as just something that has multiple fulfillments, but clearly the giving of a son, and we see that even if it did originally apply to Hezekiah, it, it applies most precisely to Jesus. And what the text is wanting us to see this morning, this is kind of the, if you might say the devotional or the formational aspect of what we're reading this morning, is an invitation to take into yourself deeply this morning that God is superintending human history. And he's making sense of human affairs. And that this is not just a little theological nicety, it's core to God's unconditional covenant love. That God's passionate zeal and resolve for his purposes, for newness, it's always present, though not always perceived in our world. 
And so this passionate love that God has for the world, we're reminded of in Advent, but we're also called to join him in this love, to will the good of the brokenness that we see around us, to cultivate this kind of love in our hearts and in our various interactions. The notion being that as we do so, we're working against the various forms of hatred that are all around us and that dehumanize. And then the text invites us to do this in a confident, gentle poise because of the qualities that will be seen in this son. If you look at your passage, there's these you know, very famous words that we think Handel made famous, but um, <laughs> actually they're, they're from Isaiah here. There's a reason that we can have in our day today, I wanna to say those words again, a confident, gentle poise. So let's say against a fearful, reactionary, religious anger. Like we're invited to live into something different because Jesus is actually a wonderful counselor. That is to say, he's wise and discerning. He knows everyone's heart. When you have this description of mighty God, it's meant to say something like the exact representation of God, full of grace and power. When you see that descriptor, everlasting father, just means to say that he's generative. And where there's evil, he's able to generate goodness and his will out of that. Uh, everlasting father means something like he has this ability to guarantee his will and that he's the prince of peace. That is that he creates a people that contrasts with the selfish oppression and chaos of human rulers. And that even given all the evil of various rulers and empires that exist today, the text says that of his greatness, of his government and peace, there will be no end. That he will establish this and withhold it with justice and righteousness forever. And this is what we wait for. So you just need to picture the, the strand, the string that runs through our story of waiting. Israel in her exiles, waiting under a bad king, waiting, waiting generations for a Messiah. The Messiah comes, and now we wait, and this is Advent. It notices and celebrates the first coming and teaches us to wait for that moment when justice and righteousness will be here forever. And I want you to try to feel this morning that this is personal. Like this isn't primarily political or economic. It isn't primarily systemic, you know, in the ways that we think of the large structures of humanity. This is largely personal. It's passionate. This is God's emotionally driven covenant love and loyalty. And, and God has these simultaneous loyalties, the passage says, to his own reputation and to his creation. And when these two things merge, then humanity is safe and heading in a healing direction. And so while it appears that the powers of this world have a firm hold, God's power, these stories tell us, every Christmas will have the final victory. That the coming of Jesus is not just proof of a fulfillment of God's promises, but it's a testimony to the trustworthiness of God, who is right at the heart of who he is. Now, what if you actually believe that was true? And I believe that was actually true. That this isn't like just sort of fulfillment of prophecy, although it is that, of course. 
And it isn't, you know, primarily a big turning point in religious history or something, though, of course, it is that in these stories we hear every Christmas. But what if this is a manifestation of a personal God who personally loves you and is revealing to your, he's revealing himself to you in his trustworthiness so that you can have exactly a gentle, peaceful poise because he is trustworthy. He's present and he's reliable now in any darkness. We're not living in ancient Jewish darkness. We live in and out of our own darknesses and that he is present and faithful to that and, as, and will be as the future unfolds. So how does he do this? Well, if you look at your gospel reading in Luke 1, we get this little explanation as Mary asks her question, how is this gonna be? How's this son gonna be born to a virgin? And the answer from the angel is twofold. Number one, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now, this isn't Pentecost, right? That'll happen a few months from now. But that is a Pentecostal question and a Pentecostal answer. When God is about to do something or cause somebody to be something that they wouldn't otherwise be able to be or do on their own, that is enabled by the Holy Spirit. And this is why you occasionally hear me say, there is just nothing to be afraid of or ashamed of in a rich, interactive, conversational relationship with the third person of the Trinity. It's fundamental to Christianity. And we see it here in this inbreaking of what God is doing that he's saying to Mary, Mary, I'm gonna be the one who helps you be and do in harmony with my will, much more than you would ever be able to do on your own. So that raises a question. Would you like that? Would you like to live a spirit-empowered life in which God works in and through you being able to do more than you can do or be on your own? And that's what, that's what for again, millennia now, the church has said yes to that. The church wasn't saying yes to a certain denomination. The church wasn't saying yes to a certain set of modern practices. The church was saying yes to a robust interaction with the third person of the Trinity. Yes, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Yes, I want you to be in and through me more than I could be and do on my own. And then secondly, she's told that you'll be surrounded by power of the Most High. That is to say, you're gonna be engulfed in the sovereign power of the created God, something like that. And there's a, a very important contrast here that this is not like the bullying of a pagan God. This isn't like trying to placate a pagan God. But again, this is deeply personal, it's relational, it's covenantal. As Augustine you know, famously said, God made us for himself. And that's what Mary is experiencing here. She's not something, she's not just a utilitarian, this isn't just mechanistic, this is a deeply personal God dealing with a deeply personal woman and seeing that love simultaneously cares for us and leads us into God's saving purposes for the world. That's what Mary's experiencing. She's experiencing a personal answer from a personal God, and that is leading her out into God's saving purposes through here. Now tonight at um, our candlelight service, Todd Pickett will have a bit more to say about this, but I just wanna say that for me, Mary has always been the supreme example of this dual sort of love. And it reminds us, at least me at least, because I got to sit with it all week, of the dual pains of our art this morning and how it suggests to us that to live into this kind of love requires a both and, the kind of both and that it is in the great commandment of loving God and then loving, if you look at the right hand pain, 
the fleshly bits of others. It takes both to have and to live into this whole picture that Mary is living into. And so Mary being favored of God is experiencing something like election. You know, you know that word, the doctrine of election? And she's experiencing that what it means to be chosen by God, and this is what it means for us too, it means to be the means of blessing to and bringing in the rest. So you're blessed in a sense to be a blessing, to be one who extends blessing to others, and that that then overflows to the rest. So that election is not just an honor and a special privilege, but it's a special struggle. I mean, we can't really imagine this, especially a guy. Uh, You women could get closer. But can you imagine the, quote, special struggle? What does this mean? I'm to be the bearer of a son. How can this be? And so election is a special struggle and a special responsibility to be bearers of this blessing. It, it is something like agency. Again, do you know that word? The ability to act, the power to exert or to perform one's will. And made in the image of God, we're invited to join our agency to his. So Mary, being a competent human being, has the ability of agency. And she's invited to take that which is potential in her and to marry it with God. And this is right at the core of Jesus' sayings in the New Testament, to lay down or to lose one's life. It doesn't mean to become a doormat, a nothing, a nobody. It means to take your agency and to not live in opposition to God's, but to take your agency and marry it to him because you too have been called. You too have been elected to this journey of special struggle, special responsibility, special blessing to others. So Mary overcomes her perplexed fear and says that she'll wholeheartedly participate, saying, behold, these famous words, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So abandoning her inner anxiety in favor of God's word to her, she submits her destiny to God, saying, I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to be an active, willing, creative partner in this holy disruption in my life. Well, towards what end? It just so happens that my favorite song that we'll sing tonight is O Holy Night. And maybe my favorite line is, his law is love and his gospel is peace. That's what we're elected into, to be the sign, the foretaste, the covenant expression of God's love and his peace. To be the cooperative friends of Jesus, seeking to live constant lives of creative goodness for the sake of others through the power of the Holy Spirit. So it works something like this. You have a promised son, Hezekiah. You have a promised son who fulfills these scriptures in Jesus. And then you have a promised us. So that every day we wake up in the middle of something that's already going on. God's unending covenant will to love and do good. That's what we get up every day in the middle of. That's what's actually happening. And we're invited to take our life and to align it with that. Walter Brueggemann says of this passage that the transformative zeal of God for peace and prosperity, marked by justice and righteousness, is up to today undiminished and undeterred. 
And that's really good news if you're living under oppression somewhere. If you're living under the tyranny of a parent or a spouse, if you're living under the tyranny of some dictator in Latin America, if you happen by fate to have been born in North Korea, it's not just Christmas rhetoric. It's the hope of the world. It's a very deeply personal hope, and it's cosmic. That one day, because of this son, God's undiminished, undeterred heart towards peace, prosperity, justice, and righteousness will happen. And we're able to have genuine confidence related to the future because it's grounded in these divine actions of the past, the giving of this son. And it just helps us see that God's always recruiting human agents to enact the great reversal for which God has such zeal. All those reversals that we've seen in Isaiah during Advent. God's always calling for people to be light in a dark world. So when you think that we get up in the middle of, we get up every day in the middle of something that's already going on, that is God's undiminished zeal to bring good to the world, that's what makes sense of all the parts of our lives. Work, family, friends, memories, and dreams.